Psalm 2, please. Nathan began our Advent series last Sunday, looking at the first verse of O Come All Ye Faithful. Uh, but I'd like to, to continue by just reading Psalm 2. Psalm 2 really needs to be read with Psalm 1. It's an introduction to the whole collection of Psalms. But I think this is a really important psalm for understanding our world. So Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this psalm is about God and his anointed. Can you see that there? Uh, The kings of the earth are setting themselves against Yahweh, the Lord, and against his anointed. Now, the word for anointed uh, in Hebrew gives us the word Messiah. Uh, If you translate that into Greek, it becomes Christ. To Christ someone, to Messiah someone, means you anoint them. The anointed is the person who has had oil poured on him ceremonially to indicate that he's been set aside for a special work of God. So this psalm is about Yahweh, the God of the whole world, who has chosen Israel to be his people, and it's about the anger that the world expresses towards Yahweh's anointed. Well, who's Yahweh's anointed? Verse 4, as for me, I have set my king on the holy hill. So that's the anointed one. The anointed one is the king. But then in verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, so who's writing these words? The anointed one, the king. And another way of thinking about the anointed king is he is the son of God. Now, in this context, son means someone with a very close relationship to a father. And so the king of Israel, in a special way, was the son of God. But this is written about someone who will one day rule the whole world. He'll rule the whole world with justice so that evil will be punished and so that righteousness will be rewarded. And so the psalm finishes in this way. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Now, who's this son? He's the anointed king of Israel. He's the one who has a special relationship with God. And the only way to find real safety in the world, according to Psalm 2 is to submit to the rule of the son because kissing the son means bending down low 
as though you've been defeated in battle and kissing the feet of the king who's defeated you. It's a sign of humility. It's a sign of acceptance that you can do no more. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way and his wrath be quickly kindled. But to submit to this king is a blessing. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the son of Psalm 2 is the anointed king of Israel. You've got to keep that in mind as we think about, O come, all ye faithful. So let's think about it. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him born, the king of angels. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Christ the anointed one, who is the Lord, the ruler of the world. Now, Nathan spoke about that last week, so we're going to move on to verse 2 this week. Now, O come, all ye faithful, was written. Well, we're not actually sure how it was written. It may have been written as long ago as the 13th century. And it was probably originally written in Latin, but it was then translated by a man called John Francis Wade. It was translated into English in 1851 by a man named Frederick Oakley. And since its translation into English, it's become one of the most popular carols. Now think about this, O come all ye faithful, that's an invitation. It's an invitation to travel somewhere. O come ye to Bethlehem. Has anyone here been to Bethlehem? Well, the rest of us are in a bad way then. Aren't he? Mary and, and Peter and Wendy have been there. So does that mean we have to go? Nathan pointed out last week in his talk that uh, for Muslims, one of the, there's a sacred duty that you must do pilgrimage. There is no sacred obligation on Christians to go to Bethlehem. In fact, Bethlehem's a pretty dangerous part of the world to be in now because it's 10 kilometres south of Jerusalem in what's known as the West Bank. Now, if you've been following world news lately... The Gaza Strip is, of course, being bombarded, but there's trouble in the West Bank because that's under the control of the Palestinians as well. So if, you, if we were to try to travel to Bethlehem now, we'd be going into contested territory, which is politically unsafe. So how are we to do what the carol encourages us to do? Christians are not a pilgrim people. We don't have to go to physical places to be reminded of the important things of our faith. This is asking us to go on a spiritual pilgrimage. It's a pilgrimage that takes place in your heart. So when the carol says, come to Bethlehem and adore him, what it is asking us to do is to think again about what Bethlehem means. There was a birth there that was just like any other birth in some ways, but a birth there that changed the world. Now, this hymn is written from the point of view of someone who has become a believer. If we were there in the stable in Bethlehem the day that Jesus was born, his birth would have looked like any other. It was a mum and a dad waiting expectantly, except he wasn't his real dad, and, and the birth happened just like any other, except that it took place in a rather unusual cir- circumstance. Now, I did a little bit of homework to get ready for this and I discovered a, uh, a, an American website which has very careful information about the world population. And it told me that over the course of history, in fact, they've got this clock that keeps going around like this that shows how many people are being born every, every second. And according to this website, and I can give you the details later if you're interested to follow it up, 
Over the course of human history, there have been about 117 billion people born. Now, I want to tell you, this birth in Bethlehem is therefore one in 117 billion. Because there was something about that birth that made it quite extraordinary, except at the time that the birth occurred, it looked completely ordinary. So what does that birth mean? Now, who would you say is the world's most famous person? No, no, we're leaving Jesus out of it for the moment. Of course he is, right? But just in just in terms, right? I did some homework on this as well, right? I asked my wife, Jenny, and she said the Queen. Well, too bad for the Queen, she's not with us anymore. And I don't think her son's quite living up to the reputation that the Queen had. Um, you can debate that over a cup of tea later. But according to New Idea, that trusted organ of Australian intellectual pursuits, um, New Idea, the webs, they had a, an article about this back in, 19, in 2021 and they said we can work out the most famous person in the world by the number of Google hits that their name has attracted added to their net wealth. So I'm going to spare you all of the details, but the first three were these. Dwayne The Rock Johnson... How many people have heard of him? <laughs> Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Does he mean anything to you, Harry? There you go, right? You obviously don't read New Idea. Uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson used to be a wrestler and he became a movie star. But apparently, according to New Idea, he's number one. Number two is Will Smith. Right, he's an actor. Number three, anybody want to have a guess? Donald Trump. Right? <laughs> Google hits plus wealth equals fame. Yep, Donald Trump's number three. Now, there's another website that had a different series. You know, anyway, there's $10 for anybody who can tell me Dwayne The Rock Johnson's birth date. <laughs> He's the most famous person in the world, and you don't know? 25th Wrong. <laughs> I hope. I didn't look it up. Right. The thing about it is, we celebrate at Christmas one out of 117 billion births. So why that one? Why not Dwayne the Rock Johnson? Why not Queen Elizabeth? Now we do, we sort of celebrate the Queen, well now the King's birthday, but it's not actually on their birthday. Uh, I don't really know when Prince Charles, well King Charles was born. History... The practice of history means working out why something's important. See, lots of things happen every day, but not all of them get written down. Not all of them are important enough to be passed on to other people. You might keep a diary. You might write, this is what I did today, I went shopping. Well, who else needs to know, right? Uh, I bought some Christmas presents. Who else needs to know? History means recording things that are significant. But we don't always know straight away that something is important. Now, I've been listening to a podcast series lately. Uh, It's one of the most popular podcasts going around. It's called The Rest is History. Does anybody know that one? If you haven't listened to it yet, I recommend it. Um, Two English historians talk about interesting things from history. Currently, uh, they've almost come to the end of a series about the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the United States President, 22nd of November 1963 so it's just past the 60th anniversary of that date which changed the world 
the assassination of John Fitzgerald, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, the serving president of the United States. It was the first assassination of an American president that was captured by cameras, right? Now, the way they tell the story is really quite gripping, but immediately after what had happened, there was no doubt that when he got to the hospital, he was dead. And so America was right in the middle of the Cold War. They'd just come through the problem with nuclear missiles apparently being put in Cuba. They uh, were at the beginning of their expedition into the Vietnam War. John F. Kennedy had made some policy decisions which weren't immediately all that popular, but they were without a president. So what do they do? So in the very first instance after the assassination, that event meant this. Jacqueline Kennedy was a widow and their children were fatherless. America was without a president. But as the hours went on and, in, and the next few days, they had to work out, is the next president safe? Who killed John F. Kennedy? And so there's been all these theories that have emerged. What does this event mean and what's its ongoing significance? So there's all these theories. Did the CIA kill him? Did the Ku Klux Klan kill him? Did the Russians? Did the Cubans? All these theories. There's still people who debate it. History is taking an event and working out what it means and why it matters. And that's what we need to do with that one in 117 billion birth that took place in Bethlehem. Oh, come, all ye faithful. I hope you want to come to Bethlehem to see what happened there. Now, this hymn, as I said before, is based on scripture and meditations about the Nicene Creed. And in the Nicene Creed, it describes the relationship of Jesus as being the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of one essence with the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Now, there were some people back then, and there are still some people today who believe that Jesus is just the best created being. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. They believe that God has always only existed as one God and that Jesus is just the best human that's ever lived. He's a bit like an angel. But they don't say that he's God. Now, the Nicene Creed was written to articulate what the Bible actually teaches. And if you read the Bible carefully, you're left with the conclusion that this one who was born in the stable in Bethlehem grew up and lived the life that demands to be remembered even as far back as his birth. Because, you see, the thing is, the birth meant that this person who had always been God was born into a body. There has never been a time when the Son of God did not exist. And that was why the Nicene Creed was written, because there were powerful Christian voices who said there once was when he was not. So the question is, when did he become the son of God? Well, the answer to that is from the Bible, he has always been the son of God because he's been God, the son. He has always existed, he is eternal, but at a moment in time, he became one out of 117 billion live births. The son of God became a human. And so we, read, we sing, true God of true God. So what that means is this one who's been born here is really God. Not half God and half human, 
not a bit of God and mainly human. He's completely God and he's completely human. And so we sing light from light eternal. That's why I read from Psalm 36 before. Light is an important theme in the Bible. Light is the opposite of darkness. Darkness means evil. It means confusion. It means fear. Light means direction and purpose and certainty and truth. And Jesus comes into the world as the light of the world. It's a symbol of purity and goodness. So Psalm 27 verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. 1 Timothy chapter 6 tells us that God lives in unapproachable light. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, God is a person of such wonder and glory and beauty and radiance to try to explain it in human terms, all we can do is to say, well, where God lives is just, it's so light and so bright that it would knock us over if we were to see it. God lives in unapproachable light. First John chapter 1, verse 5 says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. But when Jesus comes and teaches the people who he taught back in those days, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever walks in me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So when we say that Jesus is the true God of true God and light from light eternal, we're saying Jesus is God. That's the significance that we read back into that birth. It wasn't immediately present. It wasn't immediately obvious. So when we sing Silent Night, Radiant Beams from Thy Holy Face... We're taking a little bit of poetic liberty because I'm guessing Jesus looked like any other baby. The reality of who he is was revealed as he grew into adulthood and taught the things he taught and did the things that he did. So Jesus is true God of true God. He's light from light eternal. And then it goes on, it says, Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Now to abhor something, it means more than just to hate it. To abhor something means that you think it's beneath you. So to treat someone with abhorrence is to treat them as though they really don't count. Jesus, we're told in this hymn, didn't abhor the womb of a virgin. But let's go back and think a bit. He was true God of true God. He came from eternal light and yet he was born in the most humble of circumstances to a woman who was not yet married and he was given birth to in a feeding trough. Now we're told in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Now the King James Version the ancient English version, says that Jesus made himself of no reputation. That's what he did. God from God, light from light, born in a stable in an obscure little town to a virgin mum. He didn't count his equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself of no reputation. He voluntarily lowered himself. Now, I talked before about famous people. We live in a celebrity-besotted culture, don't we? 
right? Uh, where it seems that people want to be famous if only they could. But because we can't, we have to sort of project our admiration onto these other exalted beings. Jesus is the very opposite of celebrity culture because everything he did was an act of humiliation. Think of all that he left. True God of true God, light from light eternal. He didn't count being born in Bethlehem or being born to an unmarried virgin beneath him. He did it because it had to be. Because without it, he couldn't have died. And he had to die. He had to have a body to die. And if he didn't die, then he couldn't save people like us from our sins. So the virgin birth is God entering the world of humanity, relinquishing all of his entitlements relinquishing all the things that he could have grasped onto which were his by right because he's God and yet he voluntarily put them aside for you and me. Now C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his book Mere Christianity. He says, The second person in God, the Son, became human himself, was born into the world as an actual man, a real man of a particular height with, a hair, with hair of a particular colour, speaking a particular language, weighing so many stone. The eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that a baby and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. So if I offered that to you today, you could become a slug today. You could become a garden snail. Would you think of that as being a good deal? (laughs) Jesus is true God from true God, light from light eternal, who voluntarily stooped down to earth to become a fetus, a baby, and a man with a body so he could die. That is, that's what we're celebrating. That's why we come to Bethlehem. Well, the carol goes on, very God, begotten, not created. Very is just a, it's an ancient, it's, it's from a Latin word which means true. So it's saying it again, he's the true God, he's the real genuine God. But to say that he's begotten, not created, go to John chapter 3 in your Bibles please, look this up. John chapter 3 verse 16, probably the Bible's most famous verse justly so John chapter 3 verse 16 this is one that many of us have memorized or at least know where to find it but in this in this verse is contained some of the most important things you'll ever hear John 3 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now this idea of Jesus being begotten of God, that's an old-fashioned word. But the word that is used in in John's Gospel there when, when it says that he gave his only son, that's where we get this idea of begottenness. And what it means is this. Jesus 
is the only son God will ever have. That word there is used for a couple that only have one child, that has no brother or sister, just them, and it's the only one they'll ever have. Some of the English translations translate uh, John 3.16, God's one and only son. Andreas Kostenberg is an American commentator and he, he says we could translate it God's one-of-a-kind son. There'll never be another son like it. Now, the reason for that is because Jesus was God's son from eternity. This is one of the mysteries of the Christian faith, the Trinity, that God has always existed as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But at a particular point in time, God the Son who has always lived in relationship with God the Father and the Spirit, obeyed his Father's will and took on a body. Now, when it says here in John 3.16, he gave his only son, that's meant to remind us of Genesis 22. Do you know the story of how God promised Abraham a son? And not long after Abraham's son, well, some years after Abraham's son Isaac was born, God said an extraordinary thing to him. He said, take your son your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Whoa. Abraham's been told by God that he's going to have a descendant that years down the track will lead to the restoration of blessing in the world. And now he's told he has to sacrifice his son. And so the story goes on throughout Genesis chapter 22. And over and over again, reference is made to your son your only son but then the climax of the story is this that an angel of God so Genesis 22 verse 11 the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven and said Abraham Abraham and he said here I am the angel said do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son your only son from me now we haven't got time to go into all the detail here but as a father of two, four children, I wouldn't willingly give them up for anything. Abraham was not required in the end to sacrifice his son. And I think that the reason that that story is there is to illustrate what it cost God to send Jesus. Abraham was told, don't sacrifice your only son. But when we get to John 3, we realise that God did. Now, why did Jesus take on a body? Why did the Son of God abhor not the virgin's womb? Why did the true God, the true light, come into the world? He came to die. He came as God's gift. God the Father, the Eternal Father, to whom we will all one day give an account, realised that on our own, we were hopeless. And the only thing that could happen so that we could be reconciled with God, so that we could live with him eternally, was that our sins had to be paid for. And only a perfect sacrifice would do, and only a perfect human could offer that sacrifice. But there is no perfect human, except one who is God, who has never sinned. Jesus stooped down from heaven. He didn't grasp onto his privileges. He became a human just as we are, and lived a sinless life so that he could offer himself as the sacrifice for our sins. That's why we celebrate Bethlehem. It would be pointless if it wasn't for who Jesus grew up to be. So what does all this mean? Well, keep reading in John. I hope you've still got it open there. 
the birth of Jesus was for the purpose of Jesus, this one who has from all eternity been God, this uniquely equipped person. He becomes a human for the purpose of dying at the end of verse 16, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then verse 17. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I'd like to issue a challenge. If you don't believe that, then don't eat Christmas dinner because you're celebrating an irrelevance. Why would we celebrate this one birth out of 117 billion? Why not celebrate the birthday of Dwayne the Rock Johnson? What's he ever done for anybody except for entertain them and make money? We celebrate the birth of that one in 117 billionth child from Bethlehem because of who he grew up to be. He was sent, true God from true God, light from light eternal, into the most humble birth possible for the purpose of growing, to take on a body, to have a body so that he could be crucified, so that our sins could be paid for. And all of this, according to those who knew him best, is so that whoever believes is not condemned. Because by believing in Jesus, you can receive the eternal life that only he, the true God, can give. So down to John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Christmas brings us face to face with an extraordinary miracle. There's never been a birth like it because there's never been a life like it. But it requires that we all face up to the reality. The birth of Jesus would be irrelevant to us if it wasn't for the fact that he grew up to die, to be raised to new life, and to be celebrated as the one who will come again to judge the earth. My challenge is this. If you don't believe that, then have a Vegemite sandwich on December the 25th for lunch. Because the other, the celebration of an irrelevant birth, what's the point? O come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem, come and behold him, born the King of angels. True God from true God, light from light eternal, Lower he abhors not the virgin's womb, very God, begotten, not created. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, our eternal God, uh, we give you praise that you are the one who created life and all that it is. You have always existed as God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father God, that in the right time you sent your Son uh, to be our Lord Jesus, to be the one who would die to save us from our sins. So I pray that you would help us to celebrate this Advent and Christmas season in the right spirit, that we would not just take it as an opportunity, even for the good things of eating the good food that you bless us with and, and celebrating with family without giving due heed to all that it really means, that this is the entry of the Son of God for the purpose of dying to save uh, his people from their sins. 
So I pray that you would cause us all to think very deeply about these things today. If there's anyone here today who has not put their trust in Jesus, who does not know peace with you and, uh, and, and the blessing of eternal life, Father, I pray that you would stir very deeply in their hearts to cause them to put their trust in you. And for those of us who have trusted you, help us to press on perseveringly, help us to, to go on in faith, um, to acknowledge the Lord Jesus uh, in all that we do and say and think. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.